I think what the Republican Party is about to do is nominate a whole slate of really crazy MAGA QAnon candidates. And I think they're going to clean house of the establishment. The last vestiges of the Republican establishment are going to be vanquished in the 2022 primaries. And if they have the majority, God help us. That's why I'm so focused on these MAGA primary candidates, because they're extremely dangerous. You know, otherwise we're going to have a Congress of Marjorie Taylor Greens, Lauren Bulberts, Madison Cawthorns, and my God, what a nightmare. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I like to catch up with anti-Trump current or former Republicans from time to time. Today's guest is Ron Filipkowski. He describes himself on Twitter as attorney, Marine, triathlete, historian, former federal prosecutor and Republican, now defense attorney and Democrat. Ron has a very interesting life story and is able to look back at his evolution with an engaging frankness that I enjoyed. And I like that he's currently putting his talents to use, trying to expose on social media what the current Republican Party has turned into through opposition research on some of their most radical candidates. I think his interview makes for a very good episode, well worth your listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Ron Filipkowski. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Ron. How are you today? Good, good. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, sure. I'm Ron Filipkowski. I'm in Sarasota, Florida. I'm a lawyer. I grew up on Cape Cod. I grew up about a mile from the Kennedy compound. Joined the Marines at 17. Was uh, stationed mostly at Camp Pendleton, Okinawa, Korea. Went to college at night school while I was in the Marines. Got out when I was 21. Finished school at UC San Diego. And history major, world history. Went to law school at Florida State because I wanted to be a prosecutor. And uh, ended up driving around Florida trying to find a place to settle and fell in love with Sarasota. And so I became a prosecutor here, state prosecutor. Then I became a federal prosecutor in Georgia. Then I was the director of the police academy here in Sarasota. And then finally went into private practice and uh, became a criminal defense lawyer, which I've been doing ever since. Been pretty heavily involved in politics. My first campaign was 1988. I was involved in a congressional campaign and run for office before, once uh, ran for county judge when I was too young, <laughs> early 30s, and uh, not, definitely not ready for it. But I was involved, active in the Republican Party, the grassroots level, general counsel of the county party and chairman of uh, president of Republican Club. So I was pretty heavily involved in Republican politics up until last year. How did that sort of Republican Party identification come to you? That is a really good question because I was completely apolitical, not interested in politics whatsoever. And I was an 18-year-old Marine stationed in Okinawa, you know, on a rock in the, in the Pacific Ocean. With my free time, you know, a lot of the guys like to play cards and hang out in the, in the squad bay. And I, I like to hang out in the library. And so what I did is I just started reading publications on both sides. I started reading, you know, the New Republic and the Nation and uh, National Review and Commentary and the Atlantic and and just sort of uh, started to form my political views that way. So I, I was pretty heavily exposed to both sides and just kind of 
eventually gravitated towards being more conservative. And, and I think, you know, being in the Marines at the time and being in that environment as well, and then being a prosecutor helped push me more towards the right at that time. What did you find appealing about the, you know, when you're reading commentary into the nation or what, you know, what was in the ideas, I guess, what was more compelling for you in those days? Yeah, I think what it was, was I was a poor kid, you know, I grew up in a relatively poor family with a single mom who cleaned houses. I just really was always very interested in like, you know, the the up by the bootstraps, the individualism, the survival of the fittest, the free market that appealed to me, you know, because I felt like I didn't have any other than maybe being a white male, I didn't have any of the built-in advantages that a, a lot of the people that I knew had. The philosophy of everybody's, you know, in theory, everybody's equal and everybody starts out equal and you're, you're survival of the fittest and you just compete in a free market. I guess that's more what appealed to me. Obviously, you know, strong national defense, the Cold War was going on then. I was 100%, you know, anti-communist, anti-Soviet. Um, and so that was a huge part of it too, was foreign policy as well. And it still is. I still consider myself pretty conservative when it comes to that. Although conservatism is defined differently. Now it's America first today, but it wasn't then. And I mean, law enforcement, people tend to pick a, a side, either defense or prosecutor side. I mean, as you're going through law school, you said you're aiming at being a prosecutor, what was appealing to you about taking that side of that, I don't know, war against crime and so on? Yeah, you know, I guess it, it was the natural evolution of where I was at the time. I was pretty conservative when I was young. I was pretty pro-law enforcement. You know, I was a little naive about a lot of things then, too, which I learned once I got involved in the criminal justice system. You kind of get your eyes open as to what's really happening. I think it was the appeal of a prosecutor's job description is sort of do what you think is right rather than a defense attorney. My, my job now is to is not necessarily that it, it's to do what's in the best interest of my client and to produce the best possible outcome. So it's a very narrow focus. And I have prosecutors all the time come to me and say, well, Ron, you know, the position you're advocating isn't the best position for our program or our community. And, and I have to keep telling young prosecutors, that's not my role. That That's your role. My role is to represent an individual client. So I guess back then that was the appeal for me was the job description is, you know, do what you think is, is the right thing to do versus just trying to produce a good outcome for one person. What was it that you liked so much about Sarasota? I've always liked to live in areas that were close to uh, metropolitan areas, but not in them you know, where they're kind of reachable at arm's length, an hour away. So, you know, here we've got Tampa and Orlando uh, an hour, two hours away, and then Miami three hours away. So we've got these big urban centers, but I'm not in it, you know, and it's beautiful beaches. It's a, it's a medium size area. It's changed a lot in 30 years, a lot more people here now, but I liked it. I liked it a lot better than the East coast of Florida for sure. How did you land that first state prosecutor job? <laughs> well, I mean, when only thing you want to do your whole life is be a prosecutor and you tailor your whole resume and background towards that, it's not hard to get prosecutor jobs. <laughs> you know, I, I took all criminal law classes. I did well. I did a criminal law internship. So, I mean, they're not the hardest jobs in the world to get, but I will say I had a perfect resume for it, you know, Marine background. And so I pretty much had my pick of, um, many prosecutors' offices around Florida that I had interviewed with, and and I just chose Sarasota because, just like the area, I, I didn't know a soul here. For people who haven't set foot inside a prosecutor's office in the state of Florida, what what did you learn as you, you know, began that practice and got involved in cases? And tell me about the system from the inside. You do see that there are injustices, without question. And, you know, that was, that was, I guess, the eye opener to me was I, I have great respect for law enforcement and most of them are good people and they work hard and they do a good job and they have a tough job. But I, I also definitely see how people in the community and people in the system get treated differently without question. 
And, and I give this example. I, I often say to juries in cases, I, I say, okay, everybody raise your hand who's ever been pulled over for speeding or any, any traffic ticket. And almost everybody raises their hands. And then I say, okay, keep your hand raised if the police during that traffic stop asked to search your car. And all the white people put their hands down. But the black people still have them up or minorities. So what I have noticed over the years is that there's, there's no question that different groups get treated differently based on race and other factors. They get pulled over more for minor violations such as window tint, cracked windshield, uh, tag obstructed, uh, those kinds of violations. They get their cars searched more often. They get detained longer. They get asked more questions. And so you start to notice that. And, and I've represented probably 25 or 30 police officers charged with crimes in my career. Right now I am. You see the, you know, the other side of, of things and you see that it's not always so clean and neat. What do you think causes that disparate treatment between uh, different people in different communities by law enforcement? Is law enforcement thinking, well, sort of individually, hey, this looks more like something ought to get checked out? Is it straight racism? Is it a lot of different causes for different people? I mean, when something that you're able to see systematically like that, what do you think are the individual components that sort of aggregate to that general thing? That's a big question. <laughs> that, that requires a thesis. Uh, I don't know. I'll do my best. I mean, yeah, there's individual prejudices for sure. You know, there's just, I guess, you know, you would see a, a young black male at two in the morning driving a car in a high crime area. Police are going to focus, be more suspicious that that person is going to be engaged in criminal activity than, you know, a 70 year old white woman in a rich neighborhood. And I think that that's just uh, not natural, but it's um, that's not the right word. It's just a prejudice that people have. And we saw that with Trayvon Martin. I mean, they're, they're a perfect example of a young black kid walking through in a white neighborhood, you know, in the middle of the night wearing a hoodie. And, you know, the guy who the neighborhood watchman just assumes that he's up to no good. And so but he, but he wasn't. And so. Those are the natural prejudices that I think go into law enforcement. And then, and then I think with a lot of them, it, you look at their motives for wanting to be a police officer. Some agencies do a better job vetting in application process, psychological evaluations, things like that, their motives for wanting to get into law enforcement. I think it's really important for agencies to look at that because I think a lot of them view it as some kind of paramilitary thing. And, and I think that dressing them up in camel. I've noticed this way more today than 25, 30 years ago when I started is, you know, the camo, the AR-15s, you know, the body armor, all the toys. I think that that feeds into that attitude. We've gotten away from the, you know, the community policing, the engaging with the public. And it's more of a confrontational standoffish paramilitary approach. And that's why I, you know, when I heard the slogan defund the police, and then I heard what it was about, it's so unfortunate that that label or that description of it was used to describe what it is. Because what it is, I think, is very legitimate, good goals. But that word defund the police is terrible. I mean, it's a terrible slogan. It needs to be repackaged or reconstituted. I, you know, police needs to be reformed for sure. But defunded is just a, is, is not a good uh, slogan. <laughs> well, the next step, it seems to me, after people being pulled over and charged is the prosecutor deciding how vigorously to prosecute, whether to prosecute, how much time to ask for, what to charge. Like, from what I understand, there's disparate treatment at that level too. And you're, you know, you were in that game. What, what did you see? Yes, you're right. Less, less so, less so than um, I think than at the street level law enforcement. But, but it does happen. There's no question. A lot of it has to do with 
ability to afford a good lawyer versus not a support system of people that are willing to come in and speak on your behalf and members of the community, that, that sort of thing. There's, there's built in advantages that, that some people have uh, that other people don't when they're in the court system. But yeah, I think, you know, the court system always looks at everybody and says, is this person redeemable? Is this person salvageable? Is this person likely to turn their life around? And they handle people according to that matrix of whether they think that the person is still a good person that's salvageable, who made a mistake. And I think you're right. Racial minorities tend to get put in that other box of, hey, we're just going to give up on this person and lock them up. You know, so I, I think that that definitely happens. It also, I'm sure, definitely happens that prosecutors are mainly trying to make the right calls, right? Sure. Yeah. The, the biggest problem is prosecutors can't ever get to know somebody personally. They, they're not even allowed to speak with. And I say this all the time to prosecutors. If you could just sit down and have a conversation with this person, you would not want to send them to prison. But unfortunately, they can't. They can't get to know them the way I do. All they know is what's on a piece of paper, what's in a file. And, you know, it's my job as a lawyer to get as much of the actual person and who they are as a person to that prosecutor in that prosecutor's head. But if you don't have a good lawyer who's willing to, to make that effort and do that, you're just a number. And that, that's where bad things happen in the system. As you were a state prosecutor, did you feel like you're doing the right thing? Did you have sleepless nights about decisions or did you feel like this is not that terribly hard, I can do the right thing most of the time? Well, you know what? I think it would be harder for me today, actually, Yeah. because back then I had sort of blinders on. You know, I was 24, 25 years old and very conservative. And, and you know, I honestly didn't look at both sides the way I should have. And so it, it's kind of easy for you when you have blinders on, just like a horse running a race. It's easy for you to run in a straight line. So I think in looking back, there's so many things things I did as a prosecutor that I believed was the right thing to do. But today I, I would not think that. And so if I went back, it might be harder because I would, I would kind of spend almost too much time agonizing over both sides. It's kind of maybe hard to do that job if you, if you spend that much time doing that. But I don't know. I, I, I think that uh, at the time it wasn't hard for me because I didn't know any better. Do you think those things that if you had a chance to revisit them, were they all like you pushed for stronger penalties or were there ever cases where you, you felt, felt you were too lenient? Was it mostly on erring on the hard on crime side? Oh yeah, you got it. Always erring on the hard on crime side. Yeah, absolutely. And just, you know, kind of being a little bit of a, a jerk to opposing counsel a little bit. I mean, the things you do when you're that age, you know, and you're ambitious and motivated. And, and like I said, coming out of the Marine Corps and, and, and a conservative approach to life, you just don't, you just don't take other things into account, other factors into account that you should. Um, so yeah, if I could go back and do my years as a prosecutor over again, I would do it much differently. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to an activist down in Louisiana once who was on the defense side and she was talking about the 18 year olds that she represented. She called her babies who got sometimes three strikes for carrying guns down there. And they were just like, they were gone. Their future was pretty well nullified by the, by the actions they took and, and getting caught but they were carrying guns in her view because it was a very, very dangerous place to be without guns. And she just, you know, she, she just suffered along with them. I think it's very hard to, you know, it's hard, it's hard to get it right in the system, but it's pretty clear that we got a lot of work to do to level the playing field. I think so. And, and I do agree there's systemic racism in the system. I get annoyed when I hear political people on the right, you know, say, well, you're accusing all law enforcement of being racist when you say that. You're, you're not. I mean, you're just facing reality. 
you know, I'm no bleeding heart liberal, never have been. You know, I was a conservative Republican who believed there was systemic racism in law enforcement. So, I mean, that's probably rare, but but it's because I'm, I'm in the system for 25 years and I know it. I, I was a police academy director, too. You know, so I trained police. How did you move from state to federal uh, on the prosecutor side? Well, I think it's probably everybody's goal who wants to be a career prosecutor to become a federal prosecutor. But, you know, as you may know, those positions are extremely difficult to get, especially if you don't have a, a political connection or you didn't go to an Ivy League school. So what happened was uh, a person from this area who knew me very well and did have those kind of political connections helped me and and basically went to the United States attorney in Georgia at the time and gave me extremely high marks. And so it was strange when I went to interview, I interviewed, there was 10 lawyers that they interviewed, nine were from Georgia and I was the only one from out of state. And so I got the job, which was I think a surprise to everybody. I think that uh, of the panel who interviewed me, the only one who wanted to hire me was the the United States attorney <laughs> herself. But she had the veto power over the other. The, the other people wanted to hire a Georgia lawyer, you know, which I understand. She liked me and she hired me. So it was really just a situation where I didn't really have any political connections or know anybody pulling strings for me. I just had one guy up there who said, you know, hey, this guy's a, a great trial lawyer and you should talk to him. So I had no expectations I was going to get the job, but I did. So how was it different? What were the different sort of offenses that you dealt with? And how was the the sort of the court system different as you moved from sort of the more minor leagues to the big leagues or as some might have it? Well, you know, I mean, it's volume at the state level. It's just volume. You're cranking out cases. You know, you're doing 100, 150 cases a year, whereas in the federal system, you might be doing, you know, eight or 10. And so that's one big, obviously bigger, much bigger cases working with federal law enforcement that are spending, you know, sometimes years on one person, investigating one person rather than 10 minutes. And so, you know, you have the resources, everything you need, staff, so, yeah, it's a, it's a completely different world than the state courts. I think a lot of U.S. attorney's offices don't like hiring state prosecutors for that reason, uh, because state prosecutors tend to get used to a volume-oriented approach, which is cutting corners, you know, making things happen quickly, getting things done quickly. And that's not really what they want at the federal level. So how did you enjoy that change? And how did you sort of reorient how you practiced? I liked the job. I did not like living in Georgia. I was in Macon, Georgia. And uh, so, you know, no offense to people in Georgia. People were very nice, but look, it wasn't my thing. I grew up on Cape Cod, you know, and lived in Southern California. So Macon was a bit of a culture shock for me and my family, my wife especially. And so it was just very difficult. It's a, it was a very segregated city. I think it still is. I mean, you can almost draw a line. And, you know, the white people in Macon live in the north part of Macon. and Black people live in the south. And it's pretty 50-50. And so I wasn't used to that either, you know, of a, of a segregated area. And so it was just, it was a huge culture shock. It was very difficult, you know, to to live there for us. And so we spent a lot of time going up in the mountains and things like that just to get out of there. That's no way to live. So I did it for two years. And then when the director of the police academy retired back here in Sarasota, they called me and they said, look, you know, I don't know if you have any interest in coming back, but if you do, we'd love for you to take this position. And I, I said, you know what? I'm coming back. <laughs> so I did. Tell me about that job. How long did you do that? And, or, and what, what does the job entail? Three years. So, you know, I was the lead instructor and I oversaw the, the part-time instructors are basically like retired police or senior police who come in and teach at night after, after work. And I was the full-time guy who was there during the day. So I taught all the law classes, report writing classes, ethics classes, 
you know, the non-law enforcement stuff, like, you know, and the police officer would come in and teach, you know, the defensive tactics, the the fighting, the grappling, the the traffic stops, shooting, all of that I had nothing to do with, you know. So overseeing the part-time instructors and then doing the full-time, you know, legal ethics report writing stuff myself. So it was great, you know, you you working with mostly like 22 to 25 year olds, a lot of them getting out of the military or other or college who want to be law enforcement. So I felt like it was great because I had an opportunity to sort of mold them and shape them a little bit differently as a lawyer. You know, I don't think many lawyers are in that position um, to train police full time. So I felt like I, I gave them a different perspective on things. Um, than maybe they would have had just being taught by a retired cop. What was next for you after that? Private practice, you know, just going in private practice, doing defense work, which was a big, big adjustment, you know. Was that like, I have to make a living? Was that like, what motivated switching over? There was no more prosecutor work for you or you had a change of heart or what, what was going on? No, I think I was 30 with four kids. So, you know. Uh, we got married young and had four kids right away. And so, you know, I had to make some money at that point, had to buy a house. And uh, so, yeah, we had a small house, you know, probably for <laughs> designed for three people. And so, yeah, I just had to go into private practice. I really didn't have a burning desire to be a defense lawyer, but that was what I knew, what I felt I would be good at. So, and I thought with my resume is very different than a lot of the defense lawyers in town because I've been a federal prosecutor. None of them had been. And I had all these connections in law enforcement and prosecutor's offices. So I felt like I could do a really good job and be have a much different background to sell to clients than a lot of the other defense lawyers in town. And, and I did. And it worked out very well. Yeah. So how did that go as a business? Was that just you? Did you build a practice? Did you join a practice? Yeah, I had a partner for the first few years who was really good at marketing and all of that that I wasn't. And, you know, it was more of a situation where he did a lot of the business end of it and I did a lot of the, the grunt work law stuff. And so it worked out really well and we had a good team going. And then, you know, we just decided to do our own individual things. It's hard to have any kind of partnership in criminal law and you don't really see criminal lawyers as part of big law firms. And it's a very individualistic thing. People hire you, they want you, they don't want other people. And law firms don't want our clients in their building. And so, <laughs> you know, criminal defense is pretty much a solo practitioner thing for the most part. So I think it probably had an effect on it over time changing me, my political views. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Yeah, you know, seeing the disparities much more so learning how to be more em empathetic to people. You're doing a lot of social work. You're dealing with people at their lowest points. They're, they're addicted to drugs. We had the pain pill epidemic raging at that time in Florida. And so I'm, I'm dealing with that up close and personal. And it really changed my whole view on not only the justice system, but just people, you know, it, it made me a, a better person, I think you know, having done defense than had I not done it. You know. What kind of people were you defending? I mean, you said people, I guess people got into trouble because of drugs, but like, what was the range of, of kind of offenses that people were charged with that you were trying to handle for them? I've done six murder trials. You know, I've done the gamut, you know, racketeering all the way down to minor petty traffic offenses. So when you first start out, like most people, you take everything. You take every case that walks in the door. And some of them are really bad, bad cases and bad people. But, you know, what you learn over time, when most people think of the criminal justice and they think of the cases that are on TV, the worst of the worst, that's 1% of the people in the criminal justice system are really hardcore bad people. The other 99% are just either had a bad day, irresponsible, drug addicts, mentally ill, you know, there's all that runs the gamut. And so eventually what I did after a while is just, I stopped representing, honestly, like the truly bad people, <laughs> you know, you can kind of cherry pick and pick and choose, which you can't do as a public defender. You have to represent everybody, but you get to a point where you can pick and choose. And I really, I really enjoy working with people with, with drug problems, people with mental health issues, 
and trying to find different programs for them and um, try and get them to help rather than prison. And that's sort of been my mission for, you know, the last 15, 16 years. Are you still doing that? Is oh, that, yeah. You're still, yeah, you're still in private practice. So how long have you been? A couple decades. Yeah. Is that, yeah. Yeah, I've been a lawyer for, I think, 27 years and probably 20, 22 or 21 of that defense now. Yeah. What was the position that you got that you ended up resigning with a letter to Governor DeSantis? Well, it's interesting. You know, the guy that's in the news today, Joe Gruters, was the one who helped me get that position. He's the chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. He was a friend of mine. You know, I was active in the Republican Party at the time. I was president of the second largest Republican club in Florida and came to know him that way. And so when an opening came up, when Rick Scott was elected, he asked me if I would go put in, put my name in for that position. And I got it. So I was appointed by, uh, and what it is, is it's a nine member commission that interviews vets, uh, people who want to be judges. We look at their applications, their background, we interview them, and then we send three three finalists up to the governor and the governor picks one of those three is generally how it works. And so I was one of the nine that served on that, which I did for um, 11 years. So two terms of Rick Scott, and then I was reappointed by Ron DeSantis. And you have to interview each time with the general counsel for the governor. So that's what I did. I I know you've had to do this before, but could you recount what led to your resignation and why you took that decision? Sure. The full story is, is this, look, I knew Trump for 35. I mean, you grew up in new England in the Northeast, you know, you know, Donald Trump, you know, back to the eighties. So of course, you know, I never liked him. I thought he was obnoxious, arrogant, a jerk, you know, megalomaniac, all of that. You know, I think a lot of people felt that way. So I, I knew who he was very, very well for a long time. And when he ran for president in 16, I supported Marco Rubio the old Marco Rubio, not the current version. I thought Trump had no chance. I thought, you know, this is a joke. This is not serious. And I think a lot of people felt that way too. Like, oh, this is, these guys could never get the nomination. When he got the nomination is when at that point, you know, I just checked out, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton was the Democratic nominee. A guy I couldn't stand was the Republican nominee. And I just dropped out of politics completely. I stopped watching the news. I just started watching sports. I just kind of put my head in the sand and and hid from everything and just kind of did my job and raised my kids. And then, you know, COVID happened. So COVID was really the beginning of it. Now I'm on lockdown. I'm sitting at home. I'm turning on the news for the first time in four years. And, you know, I'm watching this guy doing the briefings every day. And I said, oh, my God, you know, this is worse than I even remember him being, you know. What, what, what the heck's going on? And, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed that I, I didn't pay attention for those three years, but I just couldn't take it. And I think some people can understand that. So I became increasingly frustrated watching him and turned off as far as like, I can't, I can't support this guy for president this time. You know, I, I just can't. But I'm, I'm very active and involved in the Republican Party and I'm a constitutional officer appointed by Ron DeSantis. How am I going to square these two things? And, you know, one of the watershed moments was, and I'm getting to DeSantis, but was really what led up to the DeSantis thing was more my disillusionment with the Republican Party. I became obviously completely disgusted with Donald Trump. And then I saw a Lincoln Project commercial. And that was that was a big moment for me. That was a huge moment for me. I mean, I almost cried because I'll tell you why that had such a huge impact. And I, and I know they've had their, some issues and people criticize them and people on the left are like, you know, these guys are, aren't really our allies and their friends, but I can tell you they had a huge impact on me. And I know they had the same impact on a lot of Republicans who didn't like Trump because we didn't know that there were other Republicans out there who felt the same way because Republicans who were against Trump avoided talking about him to other Republicans because they love Trump and we don't, and we don't understand why they love Trump. And so you get to the point where you just avoid talking about politics and you just think, am I the only one who feels this way? You know, and then you see a Lincoln Project commercial with some people that you respect, 
like George Conway and Rick Wilson and Fred Wellman and, and these other guys, Bill Crystal with Republican voters against Trump. These are guys I've known for decades. And, and I see them and I'm like, oh my God, there's people out there that are lifelong Republicans, Tim Miller, who feel exactly the same way as me. I didn't know there were any. And so I started looking into it and started finding out there are not many, but there's, there's a hardcore few. And so that's when I started getting involved with those organizations and reaching out to them and saying, how can I help you guys? What can I do? And I started shooting videos for them. I did commercials. I did billboards. Then the Biden campaign reached out to me. And so that was it. I was sort of a Republican against Trump, you know, a never Trumper. And that's sort of how it started. So then I'm like, well, how is this going to square with my position with DeSantis? Well, obviously, when this term expires in two years, he's not going to reappoint me. (laughs) (laughs) Boards, you know, in Florida, you know, and so uh, I knew that I was toast anyway. And so when the Rebecca Jones raid happened and I saw it live, she was live tweeting and I followed her as a criminal lawyer in the criminal justice system and seeing the way law enforcement acted and the way they were used and employed and the way that the warrant was signed and all of it just repulsed me. And so I thought, well, I'm out anyway in two years, and this can give me an opportunity to sort of make a statement. And I didn't think it would make national news that it did. I thought it would be a local story, but I will at least make my statement to my community. And I did it, and um, it blew up, (laughs) which I definitely did not expect uh, that to happen. But I'm glad it did. I'm glad you're glad because... Often when you make national news, especially when you oppose something that's a lot of your own community, you can get blowback that isn't that pleasant. You had some opportunities come from it to to be in the press, but what was the good and what was the bad that came out of kind of going public with your dissatisfaction with DeSantis and that raid on a, a data scientist who was trying to put forward truthful data about COVID in the state? Yeah. And, you know, uh, about that, you know, I was always very clear in, in my my resignation letter from that day is my pinned tweet. So it's been up there all the time. People ask me all the time, like because Rebecca Jones has been in the news for other things and people, well, you know, you defended Rebecca Jones. And I, I try to make very clear that's actually not what I did. If And you can read my letter and see it's not about that. What it's about was Ron DeSantis use of police powers and turning his beef with her into a criminal law issue. That's the problem that I had. I mean, he sent 12 armed police to her house, right, to to raid it when she's just a state employee. I wasn't saying, you know, trying to be the avenger for Rebecca Jones or the lawyer for Rebecca Jones. My objection was to Ron DeSantis. Rebecca Jones was the impetus, um, but it really wasn't about her which I made very clear in my letter too. It was about his COVID policy up to that point, which I was disgusted with. And then that was the final straw. I remained a Republican because we're still in the middle of the presidential election. I, and I actually wanted to register independent but at that time. But I thought, you know what? I'm, I think I'm more effective as a Republican coming out against Trump than I would be if I left the party. So I stayed until after the election. So what came to you good and bad as a result of that move that day? I got a few Twitter followers, I guess would be good. You know, (laughs) I had never been on social media and I got on 75 days before the election. And my plan was, I'm going to get on for 75 days and I'm going to get off. And, you know, I had that, I had a ticker on my Twitter page that every day I said, day 74, day 75, days, you know, counting, counting down. And then I was going to get off. But, you know, People thought I was a bot. People thought I was a troll. You know, they they didn't know who I was. I had no followers. I was just trying to troll Republicans and shame Republicans and put in front of Republicans that were somewhat moderate and reachable. Look at who you're supporting. Look at look at who this person is. And, And I didn't understand, you know, how to use Twitter and the mechanisms of it. That sort of helped me get some traction on social media. 
And that's sort of when my Twitter started taking off. So I guess that's, you know, the one positive. The negative, yeah, what you said, a lot of blowback, some threats, you know, your name's out there, your address is out there, you're on the internet, you know. I got letters, I got emails, you know, traitor. I could never run for anything as a Republican ever again. Not that I would, but, you know, you just understand you're closing all of those doors. Look, my whole family's Republican. My kids are Republicans. And they're like, oh, dad's a liberal now. You know, I get, I get that. You know, I get in arguments over the dinner table over politics, you know, which never happened before with my own kids. It's kind of strange for, you know, the kids to be conservative Republicans and dad to be a Democrat. <laughs> Usually it's the other way around. <laughs> Do you feel like you have moved substantially to the left as a result of moving to defense attorney to seeing Trump as president and leading the Republican Party to seeing DeSantis handling COVID the way he did? Has this moved you? Now, would you call yourself a Democrat? Would you call yourself a liberal? Where are you now? Yeah, well, you know, I switched to independent after the election, and that was my intention was to stay independent. And then after January 6th, that was it. You know, that was it for me. What was it about January 6th that that you well, found? No, here's what happened to me and why I stayed on Twitter. And I told you I was going to get off after the election, but I saw very clearly three or four weeks out that, and I told everybody on Twitter, he's not leaving voluntarily. I mean... He's not going to accept the results. He's never going to concede. No matter what the results are, this guy's going to claim that he won. And I, I was saying that daily, and then it happened. And so what I did is I started switching over to track the more radical extreme groups on social media and started watching what they were saying and what they were doing and started to see the lead up to January 6th. They had these couple stop the steal rallies, which I focused on, but they were they were small and they were kind of fizzled, but they weren't organized and Trump wasn't directly involved. But then when he sent the tweet out and I'm monitoring all of their pages on December 19th, that was the first time he said, come on January 6th, stop the steal. It's going to be wild. That was the first time after the election that he himself stepped in and said, come to this rally. And I watched the reaction of the right-wing groups to that tweet, which was, buckle up, saddle up, you know, let's start training, we're going. And I started sounding the alarm bells. And you can look at my Twitter page history from December 19th to January 6th, and you can see every single day I was posting what they were saying to each other. And I was saying, guys, this is going to be bad. And most of the response I got back was, oh, you know, yeah, sure. 20 people are going to show up. It's going to be nothing, just like the other ones. And I said, this is different. Trump is directly organizing this with his henchmen. And I said, this is not going to be good. When it went down, just like I thought it was going to go down, I said, you know, that's it. I'm out. I've got to make a decision. I'm just not a good fence sitter. I got to go for one side or the other. And to me, the Republican Party had become the party of insurrection and authoritarianism. And the only way to stop it was to join the Democrats and not to sit on the fence. I saw one of your tweets fairly recently, which said something like, we have a small dedicated team that's monitoring the right. What do you actually have? Do you have people working with you? Have you raised money? What is the organization? What, what are you up to as far as trying to fight for, for the side that you're on now? I'm glad you asked me that because that's, a, that's a, something I'm pretty passionate about, which is another thing I've become educated on when it comes to social media. There's so many people in politics. It's a wash, which I didn't, I didn't realize. I'm, a, I'm an old school politician guy. You know, I didn't realize how many people are in politics with PACs that are making money off social media, off politics, that are raising money to do stunts and to play games. And they raise the money to do the stunts and then they take the stunts and use them to raise more money on both sides. 
and I made the decision. I said, you know, I don't want to be any part of any of that. Okay. I want to keep this very pure and I will never take a penny from anybody for what I'm doing. And I, and I absolutely will never do that. If you offered me $10,000 for the great work I'm doing on Twitter, I would give it back to you. I don't want any money because I don't want anybody to ever question my motives or to say I'm a grifter, et cetera. So I think that what happened is people started reaching out to me, you know, and said, I really respect what you're doing. I like what you're doing, that you're sticking your neck out and you're putting your name on it. Um, in other words, I'm not an anonymous account. They want to remain anonymous because who, who helps me? They're moms. They're anonymous moms who, you know, mostly are stay at home with their kids and they're on, and they're on social media and they're brilliant, genius people. I mean, I respect them so much. They're like out there reading stuff and passing it to you. They're watching things. They're combing internet. They're, they're much smarter than I am at that stuff, much better. And I'm better at understanding what the public will like, because I'm a trial lawyer. That's what I do. 99% of the stuff they send me, I, there's no way, I, you know, I wouldn't use it. Okay. I like it. It's interesting, but I'm like, you know, this is way out there. I can't, I can't do that. But you know, Hey, it's that, it's that 5% of stuff that they might send me. That's just golden that they find and um, they're brilliant. And so they want to stay in the background. They want to stay anonymous. I mean, it's not a huge number of people, but you know, I have two people that I work with every day. And then I have a few other people that just kind of send me things from time to time. And, you know, there's other people on Twitter that send me things too, because they might have a small following, but you know, 200 followers or something, but they learned something really important that happened and they send it to me because they want it to get a big, a big platform. And the thing that I'm most proud of is we punch way above our weight for followers. My followers are really strong. I don't have a bunch of casual political people. The people who follow me are active. They're hardcore. They're into it. They're smart. They're knowledgeable. So when I put out something that my 90,000 followers like, and, and if they do like it, it has an impact of as if I have a million followers. And I think we've seen that repeatedly with the stuff I put out in terms of the response. Are there particular things that you've put out that have broken through that would not have otherwise, do you feel? What would be some example? There's been so many. I'll give you one great example because it was kind of a funny, a funny story was the Michael Flynn Pledge of Allegiance flub, which made national news. I think that the reason why that was important is because, well, for one, he's building a pretty significant following among the QAnon crowd. Um, and he's going every single day he's out there and, you know, he's wrapping himself up as this patriotic, true patriot general. And he's always talking about the pledge and the Star Spangled Banner and wrapping himself in the flag. So when he was there at that rally, I think it was for Lynn Wood, the host surprised him by asking him to go up and give the pledge. He was sort of taken off guard. I don't think he was prepared. I was watching it live and I'm, you know, there's probably like a hundred people watching that live feed at this event in South Carolina, but that's what we do. We watch these small events because it's at these small events where there's no media. They let their guard down. They let their guard down. And that's what we do. We don't, we're not following Fox news. We're following little meetings that these people go into. My big thing right now is tracking Republican primary um, candidates. Because a lot of these guys, they're, they're way out there and they're new. And when they're new is when they're making mistakes. And I want to get them when they're making mistakes early on in their campaigns. And I got them stored, their mistakes stored in case they are the nominee. I consider myself sort of opposition research for a lot of Democratic candidates. And, and what I have is going to be very valuable, I think, to a lot of people. But, you know, to go back to that, I'm watching that event with almost nobody. And I watched him and I saw him forget the words to the Pledge of Allegiance right in the middle. He just either had a, you know, a brain freeze or, or whatever, or he just hadn't said the pledge in a while. Or, you know, my theory was he's been reciting that QAnon pledge and he <laughs> kind of got it mixed up with that because it kind of starts out the same. So when I saw it, I fell, I fell out of my chair. But 
what killed me is I was recording it, but I, when he invited him up to give the pledge, I stopped recording because I thought, well, this is going to be boring, you know, and he messes up the pledge. And I really wanted, wanted to kill myself, you know, because I was like, oh, my God, that I knew that that was going to be good because it's funny. It, you know, it's good on so many levels. I was scrambling and, and I contacted, you know, one of the moms who helps me. And I'm like, listen, somehow, some way we have to find this. And it wasn't being broadcast by anybody. What they're brilliant at is going on Facebook and social media and Instagram of people in the audience and finding. Oh, yeah, because somebody posted it who's admiring him. Yep. You got it. And that's what we yep. do. I mean, yep. I can't do that, but they can. So she's like, listen, I'm at the beach with my husband and two kids. My deal with my husband is this is our family time. This isn't, you know, I'm like, listen, I appreciate that. But you got to tell your husband, this is big. You know, <laughs> She's on her, you know, beach towel checking Facebook. And I'm like, frantically, I'm like, I'm like upset. You know, I'm like, please, please. And I'm bugging her. Like, look here, look there. You know, it took like two hours. And then she found somebody posted it. And then I'm doubting myself. Like, did I hear it right? You know? But then, you know, she, she sends it to me and I said, oh, this is so perfect. And I posted it. And of course, it was like 3 million views and was on every news channel out there. And I thought that that was good because it discredited him. It really did. It, it showed that the guy is a little bit of a phony and um, with wrapping himself in the flag. Now, is it huge? Is it, you know, going to wreck it, ruin him? No, but it, it, it was a chink in his armor. So I think that people get a little addicted to the, uh, I don't know, the endorphins that come from a lot of social media hits. And, you know, it's just exciting. You can see how excited you were about this, uh, you know, like the attention. I mean, clearly the ex-president, the former president is the the king of all in in wanting in having that addiction. But you're doing it for totally different reasons. What is your relationship with your Twitter account? I do get really annoyed by a lot of stuff. You know, I hate clickbait. You know, uh, I hate posts that say, if you don't like Jim Jordan, if you want to see Jim Jordan in prison, retweet. You're right. There are a lot of people who are obsessed with, you know, helping each other, funneling followers to each other, getting traffic. I, I honestly, I am not obsessed with that. I mean, I truly can tell you I am not, and I don't do those kind of tweets. I don't ever ask anybody to retweet anything. I try and be substantive, you know? And so, yes, there are endorphins because here's where it comes from me is I think something is really good and really helpful and really useful and could make news. And you put it out and you want to see that other people agree with that, you know? And so sometimes I put things out that I thought, oh, this is going to be really big and it falls flat. And I'm like, well, you know, I guess I'm the only one who thinks this, you know, maybe I'm losing my touch of what, what is good and what is not. But then, then, you know, you put out other ones that you think, ah, I don't think this one's that great. And it goes crazy. So it, but it also helps me gauge public opinion. And I think I'm way more wired in now than I was a few months ago, as far as um, what to look for and what's important and what will be impactful than I was six months ago when I had very little clue what I was doing, you know. As the notoriety, the- but it's not an ego thing for me. I mean, seriously, I don't want any money. I don't want any X number of followers. I also get annoyed with, hey, I'm almost at 20,000. Can you give me a follow? I mean, I don't do that stuff. I don't care about that stuff. But has it raised your profile such that it's easier to get clients? Are there external ways that this is helpful? Like a lot of times, you know, attorneys will run for office just to get their name out there or, you know, they will do something moderately controversial just to raise their profile. Does this help with that or is not really? I'm going to I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I, I hope not. I mean, I, I want nothing from this. I really, really don't. And I understand what you're saying, that there are people who have ulterior motives. They want to run for office. They want to do this. They want to do that. They want to get a job with some media company. I don't want any of that. I, I, I'm completely honest. 
I like the fact that I, I have some small influence over news cycles. I can tell you this. If you look at my followers, producers and show bookers for many, many TV shows follow me. Many media, nationally known media, follow me. And so when I put out something that's good, it makes the news. It just does. And I like that. I can imagine that's kind of being in the arena, punching more than your own individual weight because you got other people helping you find information and other people helping you read and and rebroadcast that, right? That's got to be fun. If you could have your way, if you could continue to build this and have influence, what would you most like to see come of the work that you're doing? I'd like to really take a wrecking ball to the Republican Party as it exists today. I mean, in terms of the Trump adherents, the, the Trump cult, and the people who have sold out and pledged their fealty to Trump who don't like him. You know, people like Marco Rubio, you know. I know Marco Rubio can't stand Donald Trump. I know Rick Scott can't stand Donald Trump. But, you know, they kiss his ass because they, they've made that decision that that's what they have to do for their future. So people like that are people that I want to I wanna wreck if I can, any way I can. And so, uh, you know, ethically, that's where it's at for me. I, the, the Republican Party is unrecognizable to me from what it was pre-Trump. And I, a lot of liberals disagree with me, you know, and they'll say, oh, you know, it's always been horrible, you know. But no, it, it's unrecognizable. And so I can tell you that what it is now I want to destroy because I think it's a it's an existential threat to the republic. It's an authoritarian movement and it's a personality cult at this point. And I think it's extremely dangerous. And I think the health and the viability of our republic is in the balance. I really, really feel that way. And so if I can play any role in beating that back, I'm going to. And, and when I say monitoring these nominees, look, I think what the Republican Party is about to do in 2022 is nominate a whole slate of really crazy MAGA QAnon candidates. And I think they're going to clean house of the establishment. It's the last vestiges of the Republican establishment are going to be vanquished in the 2022 primaries. And these people, if they get elected, are going to be, you know, we we hate, you know, Ted Cruz and Jim Jordan, all these guys. But, you know, you're going to get a whole bunch of Paul Kosars and Andy Biggs and Devin Nunes. You're going to get some real crazies in there. And if they have the majority, God help us. And so that's why I'm so focused on these MAGA primary candidates, because they're extremely dangerous. And I'm trying to get them at their most radical stage, which is right now, before they start moderating what they're saying. You know, otherwise, we're going to have a Congress of Marjorie Taylor Greens, Lauren Bulberts, Madison Cawthorns, Paul Kosars. And my God, you know, what a nightmare. There's a ton of them already as you've reeled off. I couldn't agree with you more about the danger that they pose or why. It also goes to the next presidential election, because if they get the majority, these are all people who would overturn the votes of citizens for the presidency in their states or in the Congress, they wouldn't stand on the actual count. They would overturn it to support Trump. And that is not a democracy anymore. You know, there are some issues that I tweet about that don't, that I know are not going to get a big response. And this goes to where we talked about, about the, the clickbait and all of that. Maricopa is a big one. I tweet more about Maricopa than anybody on the left. I mean, the right tweets about it every day. And I often say to my followers, if you could see what I see every day, monitoring right-wing social media, you would be shocked. You'd be horrified. Okay. And so I think Rachel Maddow and me, I've said this before, are the only ones who seem to be obsessed with what's happening in Maricopa because I think her and I, I mean, I don't put myself in her category by any means, but, you know, we see the danger. We appreciate what is happening, not in terms of is it going to overturn the election? Absolutely not. I mean, nobody thinks that. No, no, nobody except for an insane person thinks that. But the danger is it discredits 
the Biden administration, it radicalizes even more the right and the extremists. In a big way, though, Trump's convincing Republicans that he didn't really lose is the worst thing for the Republican Party. Because in the past, you know, whenever a political party would lose an election, you would do a postmortem and you would go, where did we go wrong? Where did we screw up? How can we fix our problems? What can we do better? The Republicans did that in 2000 with George W. Bush, and they figured we got to reach out to Latino voters. And George W. did that, and he was the first Republican to do that. And so that was the postmortem that was done after the Bill Clinton presidencies. And so the problem with the Republican Party right now is they didn't do that after they lost, because if you're convinced that you really won and it was stolen, there's nothing to fix. Why would you fix yourself if, if, if the problem is external and not internal? The problem is they stole it from us. The problem is not us and our messaging. The problem is them. The way they're trying to fix it is by trying to enact laws to make it more likely for them to win across multiple states, right? They figure they lost on that kind of basis, or at least they are following Trump's lead in that. So they're going to do the same thing. Rather than change policy, they change the rules. Yeah. You've said that you kind of feel like you're more in touch with public opinion than before. What do you think the prospects are for Trump to come back into office? Look, his age, his health, his criminal stuff. There's a lot, there's a lot of stuff there. You know, his, his rapidly deteriorating mental state, in my view. I really can't see it. And, and I don't really worry about him necessarily running and winning again. I worry about the wreckage that he can cause over the next couple of years. I hope he'll be indicted. I hope he'll be in jail, you know, like everybody else on the left. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not optimistic. And, and, you know, I'm one of the ones who throws cold water on, on that all the time. And I've tweeted this many times and gotten blowback, which is, hey, my standard response is, when he's in handcuffs, uh, I'll get excited. But I don't want to hear about Alan Weisselberg just walked into the DA's office for a meeting or, you know, Michael Cohen went to meet with the DA's for the 19th time. I, I don't want to hear that anymore. I've been hearing about Trump getting indicted for 40 years, you know, so, you know, I'm over it. So I don't count on that. I'm more worried about people like Ron DeSantis in 2024 than Donald Trump. You mentioned that the chair of the Republican Party made the news today. You didn't mention it was for sexual harassment and and he was someone that you knew and or it helped you in your career. Do you have anything you want to say about that? I mean, I've been reading the follow-up stories. Apparently an internal investigation was done and they found that it was not credible. I guess the issue I have with that is how come we didn't hear about it? How come we didn't know about it? You know? It was kept hush-hush until I think a, a local Tallahassee reporter broke the story this morning, and then I grabbed it, and it went crazy. Uh, Rick Wilson made a, a cryptic allusion that, hey, there's a crazy story coming out of Tallahassee, and everybody kind of got, well, what is it? The, the problem with that is, you know, Rick is Lincoln Project, and, you know, Lincoln Project had their own issues in this area. And so they probably weren't the best ones to carry the water on this story. So I was happy to step in and do it. Is it true or not? I have no idea, you know, but I will say that there's so much fraud and deceit and nonsense and corruption in the Florida Republican Party that is there so much stuff that they got away with <laughs> that they actually did do that, you know, something like this, if it turns out to be unfounded, well, you know, I'm sorry, but. There's a lot you did that you were guilty of that you got away with. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that you would like to be asked? I think we've covered it. I, I think that that's my sort of my mission going forward. I really want to focus on right now the 2022 races and being opposition research. So that, that's really what I want to do. About news stories, what what's very liberating is I'm not a journalist. I'm I'm sort of and so I, I'm free to say things that journalists can't say in tweets and everything. So I think that also helps be more effective. There are obviously opposition researchers 
working for the Democratic Party. There's institutions that are uh, freestanding and then their campaigns have their own. Do you make any effort to fit yourself into that ecosystem or do you just sort of operate through your Twitter feed? Are you making connections at all? I think political opposition research is like they look at background and and, you know, they they try and find things in their background, whether it's financial things or affairs or, you know, lying about your college transcripts or, you know, that that's the traditional thing. But what I do is I actually am the one I think who who is going to feed them information. I'm providing uh, substance. But like, you know, you know, media matters, which I'm sure you're aware of. I know they have a monitoring of the right operation. They're led by David Brock, ultimately, who also came from the right and switched to the left to do this. Does it make any sense to be reaching out to other folks who are working? Maybe yeah, I'm new at this. I mean, I think that the thing that I do that's most effective is all I do is play their own words. In other words, like the reason why I don't get trolled a lot by, you know, the MAGA right is because I'm not really doing anything other than here's what Michael Flynn said today. And maybe they even like those words. Oh, words. oh they, <laughs> oh, they do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of them follow me. They follow me and they don't troll me. So that's also what makes my account unusual in terms of what can they really say about what I'm doing? Negative. All I'm doing is playing their own words, you know? And so, yes, you're right. Some of them hear that and they love it. Oh, really? He said that? That's great. You know, but they're the extremists, you know. How much of your time are you putting into this, Ron? Is this like a, <laughs> is this like a second full-time job for you or what's going on? Yeah, you're right. More and more and more. The good thing is when I'm busy with work or whatever, I've got these other people working for me. And that's what happens all the time. Like there'll be some rally that we want to cover. And I'll just be like, look, I'm going to be out to dinner with my wife. You guys got to cover this. You guys got to watch this and film it. And they'll be sending me clips. And you're right. Do I sneak off to the bathroom and, and tweet? <laughs> yeah, I do. Okay. Don't tell me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but yeah, like when I'm in court, am I tweeting? Yeah. So I'm a good multitasker. <laughs> I hope your clients are getting your best efforts. I'm sure they are. Yes. <laughs> Ron, it was, it was really fun to talk to you today. Anything else you want to say? No. Hey, thanks for having me on anytime. That was Ron Filipkowski. Ron is Ron Filipkowski on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.